This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Michael Rich. I'm the executive vice president of the Rand Corporation, and I want to welcome you to our policy forum tonight on uh, public safety in Los Angeles, PBE, uh, in the post-Bratton era. I have the privilege now, uh, as we move to the program, of introducing the Honorable uh, John Vandekamp. I think all of you no doubt uh, know him from his uh, distinguished career in public service, a public defender, a federal prosecutor, L.A. County District Attorney, uh, Attorney General of the State of California, President of the California State Bar, so let me invite John to the podium now to say a few words and introduce our speakers. Thank you very much. Uh, I grew up here uh, living in Pasadena and Altadena. I'm 73. Now let me just introduce the two speakers tonight. Uh, from Rand, we have Greg Ridgway, graduate of the University of Washington, and uh, Greg is really sort of our police expert at RAND. He's the director of the RAND Safety and Justice Program and the RAND Center on Quality Policing. And uh, in that role, he has uh, championed and run a, a number of studies uh, about the Los Angeles Police Department and some of the minority issues that confront us here. One of the most recent studies they did was on recruiting and how the department can better recruit uh, young men and women for this department. By the way, when I grew up here, there were very few women in this department. Uh, today, that has changed. Uh, in any event, uh, uh, Greg will be talking with the chief tonight. About the chief, I think you have a pretty good idea of who he is, uh, but he, as you, his voice will indicate, he comes out of Massachusetts. He hasn't lost that accent. <laughs> He went to the University of Massachusetts. He uh, served in the military police during the time of the Vietnam War, went to work with the Boston Police Department. And in his various roles in the police community, he, of course, has served his very strange titles in some of these jobs. But he became chief of police of the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority. Uh, he became really the chief of police of Boston when he became the commissioner of, uh, of the Metropolitan District uh, Police from 86 to 90. And then went to New York uh, later on uh, to work with the New York Transit Authority Police Department and then became, in a sense, the chief of police of New York, where with Rudy Giuliani as the mayor, uh, uh, he initiated programs that brought greater safety to New York, particularly using the broken windows theory, which they may be talking about tonight, and other programs that were research-oriented that brought greater safety to New York. And it's one of the things that Mayor Giuliani has always touted himself about in terms of the, you know, the public safety record that they brought. Uh, he left the department in 96, came here in 2002 after six years in private industry uh, to join this department, as I say, because of Mayor Hahn's appointment of him. 
Uh, now, what has he done here? Uh, seven years on the job. He was appointed for a second term, which says something, I think, about the, the high esteem in which he has been held here. So I, I ask you to welcome both Greg Ridgway and, and Chief Bratton. Chief Bratton, particularly. So let's get straight to the discussion. Um, when you started as chief, uh, you were under this, this heavy con federal consent decree. Uh, now the next chief won't have that, but will have a really tight budget. Which one's the tougher situation to be in for a chief? Uh, consent decree, certainly. Uh, tight budgets, uh, nothing new in the public sector. We live with them all the time. The consent decree, uh, seen by my predecessors, predecessors as a uh, imposition, a burden, uh, I saw as uh, the pathway to bringing the Los Angeles Police Department into the 21st century and dealing with the issues that were uh, diminishing its stature in the 90s. The Rodney King uh, incident certainly has been mentioned. The O.J. Simpson trial was, in many respects, equally as devastating to the image of the department in which... Uh, scathing uh, reports on its forensic capabilities, its detective capabilities, and then the Rampart scandal, which went to the heart and soul of the Parker reforms of the 60s and the 50s, uh, the integrity of the department. The department felt that it was not uh, uh, capable of being tainted by those East Coast types of scandals. And as Rampart showed, there's no police department in America that is immune to corruption and brutality and uh, it really tore at the heart and soul of the organization, something that it felt uh, that it had that really no other organization had. And the consent decree was intended to correct all of the issues of the 90s, the racism, the brutality, the corruption, and the lack of integrity. So will the next, next chief be free of the burdens of the consent decree? He will benefit, and uh, in as much as... The next chief is certainly going to be one of three people that uh, worked very closely with me during the last seven years. He, in many respects, will benefit from his own labors. I've been uh, fortunate that uh, it's not that I'm so smart, but I'm smart enough to surround myself with very smart people. And I have a, uh, a large number, almost 100 members of my command staff who are among some of the smartest people in the police profession today, both civilian and sworn. And over the last seven years that we've used the consent decree as sort of a roadmap to bring the department and the police profession that we're part of into the 21st century. The consent decree, in many respects, I use that similar to what I used the national accreditation system for in two of my previous organizations, to establish best practices, to set a very high uh, bar that people are going to have to stretch to achieve to get over. And we embraced it. It was onerous. It was costly, tens of millions of tax dollars. But in the long run, uh, it was worth it. People felt very good at the end that they had achieved something. And in fact, what they had achieved is that we have the most outstanding risk management initiatives in the United States. They come from all over the world to actually look at them. We're one of the few departments that have them. Jerry Chaliff, who headed up the uh, consent decree bureaus at the back of the room. He's actually joined by uh, uh, Deputy Chief Mike Downey, who on Saturday uh, will be the temporary chief of the Los Angeles Police Department for several weeks. 
And uh, Michael heads up our counterterrorism bureau, which, along with the consent decree, best practices and use of force, mismanagement, computerized personnel systems, Michael has created with his colleagues, along with New York, the most robust counterterrorism operations in America. We are seen, widely seen as having best practices in counterterrorism. So we took adversity, and like jujitsu or judo, you use your opponent's strength to strengthen you. We use the strength of that uh, decree to move us forward, and the results speak for themselves, and the results are outlined in that Harvard report. And in your package of materials, there is a summary of the Harvard report, and the Harvard report we commission using private funding through our police foundation, and one of our members of the police foundation is in the audience, Margo Armbruster. Margo, thank you for joining us. They spent a lot of money to measure what was the impact of the consent decree. Because the consensus decree was all about statistics, meeting performance goals, but nobody ever thought about, well, what would the impact of achieving the consent decree be? And what the impact was was a community that had found new uh, faith in the LAPD, political leadership that had found new trust in the organization, and men and women in the organization who felt pretty good about what they had achieved. And uh, that was echoed in a L.A. Times poll that came out just about the same time as the consent decree that showed that 83% of Los Angeles voters uh, thought the department was doing good to very good job, but maybe more importantly, 66% uh, of African-American voters thought the department was doing a good to very good job, and maybe even more importantly, thought that things were going to continue to get better with the organization and its relationship. In a city that where for 40 years the department had terrorized the African-American community and been in some respects terrorized in return by some members of that community, that uh, the mutual fear and dist uh, distrust that they had for each other had been dissipated and in large respect been dissipated because of the consent decree and its impact. Now, a couple years ago we were at a meeting together and you were asked, uh, what's the biggest challenge that's facing the department right now? This is about three years ago. And you said recruiting. As a result of that meeting, the Ralph M. Parsons Foundation funded RAND to do some research for, uh, on this issue to help streamline, make the recruiting process more efficient and effective. Uh, Charlie Beck, one of the candidates uh, for the next chief, was here maybe about a year ago and said the current issue that he really wants to tackle is uh, effective use of DNA management and techniques. And uh, with the help of the LA Police Foundation, um, we're looking into that right now for the LAPD. What's the next thing that we need to be ready to, to address? Well, let me take you back to the two issues you uh, referenced. That one of the great uh, and exciting things about policing is we're constantly evolving. We're, we're always moving down the tracks, but we never get to a destination. And that's for 40 years, that's propelled me, because just when you think you're there, something else comes along, the next crisis, the next challenge. And several years ago, recruiting was a challenge, because prior to my arrival in the LAPD, in the space of only several years, a 1,000 highly trained, highly uh, paid officers left to go elsewhere because of low morale as a result of the leadership issues in the department, the scandals, and other personal reasons in their part get closer to home, better schools, but in many respects they left because the department no longer had an image that they were proud of and that it really was not enough to keep them. And we were able to address that recruiting and that we now have no trouble attracting uh, men and women into the organization. We have a long waiting list and we are able to pick the cream of the crop. So that crisis was addressed. 
The next crisis that Charlie was talking about a year or so ago was that we had fallen behind, like most police departments in America, in our capabilities to analyze DNA, particularly rape kit DNA, in a timely fashion. We had a backlog in excess of 7,000 cases. Sheriff's Department had a similar backlog. Around the country, it's estimated the backlog is about 400,000 cases. Mm -hmm. And what Charlie was talking about addressing was how would we find a way to manage this backlog. Happy to report that it's being managed, it's been reduced by half, and we anticipate within a year to be gone. And uh, another crisis addressed. What's the next evolution, if you will, the next paradigm? Uh, fortunately, it's not a crisis. Fortunately, the next one is something that will tremendously benefit policing, and that's the next evolution of policing. I began with professional model of policing, which the LAPD was the poster boy for. One Adam 12, Joe Friday, Dragnet, rapid response, reactive investigations. We measured success by how many people do we arrest, how long did it take us to get to a call. Problem was, that was after the fact. Community policing, which evolved in the uh, late 80s, early 90s in response to the fact we were losing the crime war in 1990, the worst crime year in the history of American government and policing. Community policing was the next evolution. Partnership, focus on problem solving, but most importantly, return to the reason for the police being created in the first place prevention of crime. And I was uh, fortunately in a position in New York to say that we in the police profession were willing to be held accountable. Resources appropriately and we'll be held accountable for not only reducing crime but preventing it. And in New York we had a singular success story. You had one here in LA but because of all the crises, the scandals, nobody noticed that in the 90s crime went down by 50 percent in the city of Los Angeles because the newspapers were much more focused on reporting the corruption, the brutality, the O.J. Simpson trial. Well, the next evolution is post-9-11, use of information to make intelligence to speed up the process. And with new technology, computer systems, fusion centers, we were able to gather vast amounts of information that in the 90s took us flip charts and fax machines to gather. We're now able to do it instantaneously. And as a result, we're able to identify emerging patterns and trends quickly, respond to them, hotspot policing, crime mapping, you all heard of that. Well, I'm presenting a paper at Harvard the next two days on predictive policing. And predictive policing is the next evolution, the next big thing, if you will. And it's not in response to a crisis, it's the fact that the crises of crime increase has been somewhat uh, abated since the 1990s. So we have the luxury to perfect our systems of policing crime. And predictive policing, we will, uh, in November, birth it here in the city of Los Angeles. We've convinced the federal government to fund the country's first ever predictive policing conference. Rand is uh, being uh, brought on to evaluate it. And there'll be a series of initiatives over the next several years to test out this theory, which I happen to embrace and I'll be the leading advocate for, that we are in a position where with the gathering of information, crime information, with the capabilities to stay on top of it with crime mapping, et cetera, we will be able to predict with some degree of certainty where crimes are going to occur, where patterns are going to emerge, and get in there very quickly and stop it. It's like medicine, if you think of it. We're all concerned about the swine flu epidemic. Well, somebody was predicting that epidemic several years ago. Somebody else came up with the swine flu um, vaccination to basically forestall some of its impact. And we're hoping with that predictive capability, with that response of the vaccine, that will mitigate its potential negative impact. 
That's effectively what we're doing in American policing, and it's very exciting. I'll be doing it from the private sector for a few years rather than the public sector, but it's what the business is all about and why it's so exciting. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree that predictive policing is, in fact, one of the next things on the horizon, and the National Institute of Justice is having us look into the various initiatives. In fact, in Boston, in New York, in L.A., the three places that you've, you've worked, they have initiatives up uh, and running. And also in places like Shreveport, they're starting to try out predictive policing. I think it, uh, it has a lot of, a lot of potential. Um, the city council said there's tight budgets. 20, 20 officers per 10,000 residents should be enough. And uh, the department should have more than 25% civilians. Now, these words were actually spoken to Chief Parker in, in 1954, and that you got the same message from the city council. Uh, have we really done, is everything really the same after 55, 60 years? Well, what's the right size and what's the right composition of the department? Mm -hmm. Well, Chief Parker made a deal with the devil back in the 50s and 60s that uh, the idea was that uh, I won't bother you for a lot of cops if you just leave us alone and we'll take care of business. And he began a 40-year history in which the department took care of business but managed to alienate just about every minority community in the city. And uh, also, for a period of time, I uh, had, next to J. Edgar Hoover, the most effective spy machine in America. And uh, so the thin blue line line that was coined by him was not so much the idea of too few police, but the idea of the thin blue line to keep you over there and the police over here and don't pay any attention to what we're doing, uh, and we'll take care of business, and it won't raise your taxes. So effectively, he set in motion a process that uh, continued, really, until the 1990s, in which this city has always underfunded its police force. Uh, the motto on the side of our car says to protect and to serve. Well, that's what we do. That's what we're supposed to do. But increasingly, uh, we had fewer resources to do it largely as a result of systems that were put in place in the 50s and 60s. The real motto of the LAPD, which I saw firsthand when I got here, was too few who for too long have been asked to do too much with too little. And uh, you get what you pay for. And in the case of the LAPD, you weren't paying much because you wanted to spend your tax dollars someplace else, so you didn't want to be taxed at all. And so it's been an uphill struggle uh, to raise the size of the police force, but uh, the good news is that beginning with Mayor Hahn and then certainly uh, uh, very aggressively under Mayor Viragosa, that uh, we've fought a lot of battles and convinced the voters to raise the tax dollars and fees that they pay. And we now have about 800-some-odd uh, additional offices over what I had when I began in 2002. I had 9,177. I think we're at 9,983 as of today. And we talk about police being an investment, and indeed there's a man's study that's referenced in the material that you have in your folder that looked at three studies relative to the economic impact of crime in the city. And the most conservative of those three studies, and we're asking Rand to actually do a more contemporary study, but the most conservative a few years ago that was done in this city indicated that the negative economic impact of one murder, whether it's a gangbanger down in South L.A. or somebody up in Brentwood, is $4 million dollars. And when there were 677 murders when I arrived in 2002, this year we will probably have about 300 at the end of the year. 377 fewer murders in 2009 than in 2002. Multiply it by $4 million, get close to about $1.4, $1.5 billion. My budget's 
I'm giving you a great return on investment. I'm making a profit for you. <laughs> and so we're also changing uh, the uh, way we describe policing. We are in investment. And we are an obligated investment in that public safety is the one thing that's guaranteed by our Constitution. And if you don't have it, then you're not going to have businesses that will build, schools that will educate, and you will not have, in our case, tourists who will come to spend money and give us tax dollars to uh, effectively do other things that we would like to do. So the idea of uh, uh, the issue of police, it's... Uh, we are truly an investment, and in this case, those 800 cops have paid off big time. Because since 2002, and another document that you have, you got your bedtime reading in that uh, folder that you have there tonight, uh, something I'm very proud of, that uh, overall homicides in the city of Los Angeles are down by 59%. Gang homicides are down by 58%. Overall violent crime is down by 53%. Overall, part one crime, which is the seven categories we measure with the FBI, is down by almost a third. Every category of crime is down, and it's been down for eight straight years in a row. It's been down in the midst of the worst recession since the Great Depression. And something I'm also very proud of is that uh, a lot of researchers, academics, criminologists, uh, do all these studies, and uh, basically most of the time they don't know what the hell they're talking about, being quite frank with you. One of the things I appreciate about Rand is Rand gets in and actually talks to people in the business, and so their studies tend to come out with a higher degree of accuracy. But one of the things that has been constantly misunderstood is the idea that the economy worsens, crime's going to go up. Didn't happen here in L.A.? Just the opposite. It's continuing to go down. In a city that has one of the highest uh, rates of illegal immigrants, day laborers, those people aren't running out committing rapes, robberies, and murders because they're unemployed. Among those who are here legally and with a 14% unemployment rate, they're not turning to crime because the economy is worsened. We have a police force that is able to control behavior, and increasingly as the consent decree is reinforced, we're doing it constitutionally, we're doing it compassionately, and we're doing it consistently. Poor neighborhoods, rich neighborhoods, white neighborhoods, black neighborhoods. And uh, basically we're showing that police count Cops matter. Well, thanks for not lumping us in with all the other researchers. No, in terms of it, uh, I, I, I get very frustrated. Anytime I see a study that uh, basically uh, has a formula in the paragraph, I immediately close the book because I was never very good at algebra trigonometry in the first place. So when they start talking to each other in uh, logarithms that uh, give it up because it has nothing to do with American policing because the average American police chief cannot sort out the formulas. So uh, one of the things that you fortunately do at RAND, one of the things that George Kelly and Jim Wilson do, they write in English, they speak in English, and they basically understood that uh, American police chiefs need studies and research that is of value today. No good studying something that's five years ago because American policing is contemporary. It's now. We need information that's timely. We need information that's accurate so we can rapidly respond to it. And then rapidly respond to it, we develop effective tactics to deal with what's been identified as a problem and a patent, and we have relentless follow-up. We don't go away like we used to in the good old days when, oh, made that arrest, solved that problem, move on to something else. No, we stay with it. Well, one example of that research that we've done recently is uh, Los Angeles is unique in that when you buy ammunition, you actually have to show ID and leave, leave a thumbprint. It's one of the only places in the, uh, in the country where you have to do that. And in 2004, we worked with LAPD and ATF to go 
uh, collect that data and have a look and see who was buying ammunition. We found that about 3% of the transactions involved people who were pro prohibited from buying ammunition. Ex-cons, people with restraining orders. Um, that uh, now recently, as part of LAPD's experience and the Sacramento Police's uh, experience with ammunition logs, um, the governor uh, just last week signed a law to make this ammunition registration uh, uh, statewide. Um, and he said that uh, this is the sort of thing that strikes the balance between uh, gun, gun ownership rights and public safety. And, and you echoed those remarks as well. Um, is this, in fact, uh, what's this going to mean for Los Angeles? And maybe are there other things that we could do to reduce gun violence? Well, effectively, what Rand did, and certainly the uh, uh, assembly leadership, Assemblyman uh, uh, de Leon, uh, were able to do, we were able to use good research data. You were able to use real-life experiences to convince a governor who uh, really has not been willing to sign gun legislation. He's a Republican and, uh, you know, has been very much influenced by the NRA. But in this instance, we gave him an out. We gave him research that conclusively showed that we could have an impact on this issue. And with that, it allowed him leverage to basically uh, sign legislation that will make this requirement statewide. And uh, it's not going to uh, have a phenomenal impact on the issue, but every little bit helps. It's, a, it's an incremental change. And it's based on research, and it reinforces the importance of research. And uh, one of the great frustrations in the criminal justice system in my world, policing, is how few dollars are devoted to research. We spend more money on tooth decay research in the United States every year than we spend on something that's taking 25,000 lives every year in the United States. By a factor of 10. Violence. By a factor of 10. By a factor of 10. Yeah. Well, here's a researcher. So, He'll give you the actual yeah. information. So I see everybody here has very nice teeth, right? <laughs> so that's, that's your uh, tax dollars at work, I'm, sh I'm, I'm sure. Um, uh, maybe one more, one more question before we, we open up for, for, uh, for discussion. Um, I assume there were some innovations, some things you wanted to, to, to roll out at, at LAPD, um, but, but couldn't. Are there certain things that you think you could have done, but there were barriers uh, that could have made the, the department even better? The devil is in the budget, that uh, you can only spend what you have. And again, that's my argument about investing in police. Uh, and Mayor Villagosa gets it, and that's why he's hanging so tenaciously onto the idea of growing the Los Angeles Police Department. And uh, fortunately, he has uh, continued to win over the majority of the city council to support this idea. Because the idea is that if the economy begins to turn around, as tourists once again decide to come and spend money, as parents make decisions as to where they're going to send their kids to be educated, as businesses decide where are we going to invest, that those decisions oftentimes are going to be predicated on businesses, certainly, where can we get a return on the investment that we're not being robbed every time we turn around or burglarized, that parents are going to send their kids to school, no matter what the reputation, academic reputation, the first concern is going to be safety. And tourists who have discretionary income can decide they can go anywhere in the world are going to go to places where they feel safe. So he has tenaciously hung on to the idea in these poor economic times, let's spend the money on improving public safety. 
because it has direct benefit that we are saving countless lives, but we are also preparing the city to be able to advertise itself as safe. New York City accomplished that in the mid-1990s. I remember myself and Mayor Giuliani shortly after I was appointed going to an international real estate conference down at the Southside Seaport. And New York uh, was losing tourism at the rate of a million to two million tourists a year at that time. And there was considerable disinvesting in New York. You could buy a townhouse up in the Upper East Side for a dime, literally, that uh, people were afraid to get out of a cab to go to the front door of the townhouse because they were afraid of being mugged in that short distance. And people coming out of restaurants were fearful on Madison Avenue and Park Avenue coming out of restaurants. And we told the real estate industry that we were going to change that, and if they were smart, they would start investing. I wish I had some money to invest and follow my own advice because I wouldn't be sitting here with you. I'd be, uh, I'd, I'd be sitting back in New York counting my millions. But uh, in any event, within several years, uh, that situation turned around and turned around dramatically. Tourism went, I think, from something on the order of $28 million a year up to about $38 million a year in the space of three to four years. Why? Because the city was perceived and in reality was safe and getting safer. The mayor understands that, that uh, and I certainly understand it because I've seen it firsthand. And when I go back to New York, that uh, the one thing that people feel good about in that city is even in the midst of economic crises, they feel safe. Now, you've actually done a lot of world traveling and looked at other police departments. I'm accused of being out of town too much. I have heard that. Um, now, have you, have you, most of the time you're going places to help them improve policing there, but do you ever stumble across something there uh, in these other countries, maybe in the UK or in Europe, that uh, that's an interesting tactic, that's an interesting sure. program, that's something that... U.S. policing could learn from? We're, we're fortunate in the LAPD now that we're seen as a place to come to where we're willing to share what we have, and we have some of the best policing practices in the world today. A lot of those is a direct result of the investment through the consent decree. But a lot of my travel is to also not only to share, but to learn. So, uh, for example, the award I just got from Queen Elizabeth was a direct recognition of fostering better working relationships, sharing and partnership relationships with the British police services. And what was it that we were seeking during my seven years here and indeed during my time in uh, New York from the Brits? They were light years ahead of us on DNA. They were light years ahead of us on terrorism as a result of their 30-year experience with the IRA. So when the new terror threat, Al-Qaeda, came onto the scene, they were uh, dealing with 30 years of experience. Camera technology, uh, nobody can get anywhere near them in terms of their camera technology. And that's what helped to solve the bombings that they recently had in London several years ago. So they had a lot to, sh to sh give to us. We had a lot to give to them, that uh, we were 10 years ahead of them with community policing. In the 1990s, as we were embracing the idea of putting cops back in the neighborhoods, embracing broken windows, the Brits, senior British police service members, wanted no part of it. The government literally had to force the police services to finally wake up and recognize broken windows, putting cops back on the beat. Ironically, the city that created policing, the Barbie, the cop on the beat, a hundred years later they had moved away from it and they had to basically relearn it from America. So we are continually exchanging and sharing information. In the world of terrorism, Mike Downey, Michael is uh, on the road even more than I am. 
-hmm. And, uh, you know, he might be in Jordan today, he might be in Paris tomorrow, he might be south of the border. Uh, I continually have my command staff traveling all over the world. I don't even care to keep track of where they are because there's so many of them gone at different times that I don't need to waste my time. But when they're there, they're learning, they're sharing. And one of the reasons we are so strong on our counterterrorism capabilities is the fact that we have face-to-face -face relationships. Michael and I, six months ago, were uh, meeting with the King of Jordan that, uh, to develop an exchange program between his country and our police department. And that's an example of the benefit of, in this global world, that you have to be there. And when I was just joined by Mike Burko, who planes on time, Michael coming into LAX, that's good news. Michael is uh, the recently uh, retired Chief of Savannah, Georgia, and for uh, four years uh, following his time as the Chief of Irvine, was my Deputy Chief for the Professional Standards Bureau, one of the smartest people in rural policing, let alone American policing. So many of the best practices that were developed in our Professional Standards Bureau under the consent decree, force investigation, internal affairs investigation, sting operations were developed by Michael during his time. Michael is going to be my COO in my uh, new company, Altegrity, and we're hopefully taking a lot of these best practices that have been developed here in America and take them around the world uh, over the next few years as uh, the United States starts investing in developing in emerging post-conflict countries democratic policing principles, most of which have now been perfected here in the United States. All right, thank you. Uh, I think we should open up for questions at this point from, from the audience. We will have uh, microphones uh, roaming around uh, and, and get to you. One question right here, sir. Uh, you talked about the UK and their camera technology. Could you just talk about uh, the desirability and the likelihood of uh, getting that kind of capability here in Los Angeles. And uh, a second question, how would you uh, deal with traffic? <laughs> <laughs> I stick to what I know, and so I'll stick to the, I'll, I'll stick to the cameras. Uh, the cameras that they have in Britain, it's unlikely at any time in our lifetime that we'll have what they have, that uh, we rely very heavily on the private sector camera systems here. Uh, our detectives now routinely, one of the first things they do when they go to a crime scene is canvas the area for private sector cameras because we have so few in the public sector. Uh, cities around the country are increasingly attempting to use federal money or their own money or private grant money. We've used a lot of private grant money here to put in limited systems. New York is attempting to put in a major system in the Wall Street area to mirror what's been built in uh, England in the city of London, within London proper. Um, but the systems that the Brits have that uh, uh, we're not likely to see anytime soon, even though cameras are getting less costly and the technology is getting much better. I'm a big advocate of them, and particularly the emerging technology is continually improving. Voice-activated, movement-activated uh, types of cameras. Uh, uh, you can even program the cameras to watch for variances in movement to determine that uh, somebody that uh, is stopping where everybody else is moving along, that's where the camera was there. We're phenomenal how the technology is evolving and developing. But again, uh, the devil is in the budget, and most of our budgets, we're lucky we have cops and cars, let alone some of that technology. But fortunately, over the last seven years, we've acquired a lot of it in the United States. And at a press conference this morning, the LAPD is working with an Australian manufacturer of police cars that's partnering up with GM 
we have designed what we believe is going to be the prototype of the next American police car to be placed, the Crown Victoria, which is being phased out. And that car is a phenomenal piece of equipment. It has no jagged edges that all the computers are built into the dashboards, all touchscreen technology. The seats are custom designed for the officers and the pistol belts that they wear. And the car is designed to be resold. That uh, literally the uh, car is a basic silver, and we put black and white uh, covering on it. And when we go to sell the car, we take the black and white off, and here's a silver car underneath. Door panels are all basically removable so that the car can be very quickly sold as a private vehicle. And the purpose of that is that uh, we might now sell a police car for about $1,500, $2,000. The Australians sell the car for about 70% of its original mm -hmm. purchase price because of that. So once again, our travels, Charlie Beck has spent time down in Australia. And once again, our travels are benefiting that here in Los Angeles, we're designing the police car of the future. And uh, it is quite the car. Uh, it is not equipped with milk crates. When I was a Boston police officer, every Boston police car was equipped with milk crates. Why? Because the front seat was always broken. I had a lot of fat cops in those days. Who you ever, ever see a really very heavy person get into a car? They basically rock back and forth in that seat till they get settled in. Every Boston police car, every front seat was broken, so the only way you could hold the seat up was with good old wood mill company wooden crates. And... Uh, I understand the LAPD had plastic ones. You guys were evolving a little faster than we were. <laughs> um, out on the table, there's a report that solves uh, L.A. traffic in the next five years. So you can have a look at that. D don't, you, don't you believe it. Okay. We have a question over here to your no. right. Even man's not that good. It does cost a little <laughs> bit. It does cost a little bit. Chief, I don't know if this goes to you or Mr. Ridgway or both of you, but predictive policing sounds fascinating interested to know if it will include a component or should it include a component of funding, stabilized funding, to address the budget issues? Let me speak to it in that the uh, good news about it is that it can use a lot of the existing systems that police departments already possess. Most police departments are now acquiring uh, crime mapping, which is a basic element of it. And uh, so it's not a particularly costly type of uh, innovation. There was a recent USA article about a small town out in the Midwest, 60-person police department, that re it recently acquired a crime mapping system, not particularly costly, and they were watching real-time a series of incidents with cars being vandalized, you know, kids going down the street, breaking out the windows. And as the calls were coming in, and as they were, basically they had enough sophistication that as calls came in on their 911 system, they were automatically put up in their central dispatch on the map. And they could literally see 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden they were having this series of crimes going across the map. Looking at it, they anticipated where the kids were headed, put their offices there, and sure enough, the kids came right into them. Predictive policing something as simple as crime mapping. We have a real-time crime center that we have just built. It is next to New York's. It's the most modern and sophisticated in the country. And it's consciously and intentionally designed to accommodate sophisticated use of mapping, real-time information as it's coming into our 911 operators. It's going right up on the maps. So if we have all of a sudden a spree of gas station robberies beginning to occur, and it's going across several of our patrol areas, 
In the old days, we wouldn't find out about it a couple of days later when detectives started sending their reports in. Now we can literally pick it up as it's occurring. Uh, the, the world of policing is getting more and more fascinating, and it's uh, also it's uh, it's still costly, but it's over time as more and more departments acquire things. It's like television when uh, the new flat screens first came out; they're three or four thousand dollars. You can pick them up for seven or eight hundred now because volume uh, allows for a much more reduction in the cost of them. I have a question here to your left. Thank you. My name is Gabor Kolata. I'm the Hungarian consul here in Los Angeles. My question is how can you outreach to minorities? I'm asking this because Hungary has a sizable Roma minority. These folks are facing very often discrimination, and it, it would be a good uh, solution if the Hungarian police could deploy them. Thanks. One of the things that we have, I believe, done successfully in Los Angeles is turned a corner on race relation issues that uh, we haven't gone very far around the corner, but as reflected in the recent polling and indeed just a lot of the first-hand interaction I have as I go about the city, uh, we have turned a corner. And a corner was turned with the idea that the management of police, the investigation of complaints against the police, the um, ability to be very transparent to be accountable. In the case of the Los Angeles Police Department, I work for five civilian police commissioners. They are my bosses. They have an inspector general, and uh, they have oversight and evaluation capabilities of the department. Uh, we've come a long way uh, uh, in Los Angeles, and Los Angeles had some of the worst race relations between its minority communities and any police department in America. We've had two of the worst race riots ever in the history of the country in literally the last two generations. So to have come as far as we have in just the past seven years, uh, this is where I'm talking about the ability to share experiences. Certainly I would encourage from your uh, uh, a beautiful country and Budapest, which I had the pleasure of visiting a few years back, that uh, you know, I'd be more than happy to have representatives from your country come in and take a look at what we're doing. We really feel that... Uh, we're uh, leading the way in uh, the ability of police to improve race relations. And if I could expand on this for just a moment, uh, one of my passions in 40 years in policing is that I have a great love for my profession and a great respect for its potential. And one of its potentials is to undo its history of uh, dealing with racial issues. We have been the flashpoint for most of the contemporary and indeed the historical issues of race flaring into violence. We were the original slave catchers. We were uh, basically, uh, I think, throughout the country during the years of segregation, the instruments of government to basically uh, segregate and to enforce those laws. Uh, I really do believe we have the potential to be the cutting edge and to be a cutting edge that can more quickly than just about any other entity in our society heal some of those racial wounds and address them. And one of the reasons for coming to Los Angeles was to have that opportunity. Didn't have it in New York. I was only in New York for the city for two years, so those dramatic crime declines, which were felt most in minority neighborhoods, and in every neighborhood in New York, were offset by the terrible uh, relationship between the then mayor and the African-American community's leadership. It was open warfare uh, politically, 
even as the police were making that city a much safer place. Here, we've been able to make the city a much safer place, and particularly in the most crime-ridden areas, but we have a much more enlightened political leadership that is really working hard with an enlightened police department to work on racial tensions at the same time. And uh, as I'm leaving the profession, I'm feeling very good that the theory that was only a theory, I've been able to really, with uh, some very smart people in the LAPD and some great political leadership, and with great community support, a support that is now uh, trusting of the police in ways it has never entrusted us, that we have made a difference. And it's uh, uh, all of us, I think, want to have lives where we have lives of significance, where we have impact. Uh, in my profession, I want cops to count. I want police to matter. And I think the last seven years have shown that we can't be uh, uh, seen as counting or having uh, made great changes in this city and this region. All right, next, question, next question right here. Uh, you've talked about some of the systems that are developed in one police department, um, and yet each police department has their own budget how do you share a system or share the development costs across the country between different police departments? Great question. Here in uh, Los Angeles County, 45 different police agencies, huge sheriff's department, huge LAPD. Uh, we share in a variety of ways. That uh, One of the strengths of California is its uh, post standards that all police officers have to train and continually be recertified to specific standards so that even though we have small departments, large departments, and they may vary in terms of their equipment, et cetera, that the one thing that is consistent is the training standards, and they're some of the highest in the nation. So we benefit by that type of system. We also are benefiting from lessons learned from 9-11, in which the FBI and the, uh, the CIA were talking to each other by law, and neither of them were talking with us, local police, because it was felt that we didn't have the sophistication or the need to have the information that they had. 9-11 proved that, one, they needed to work together, but more importantly, local police were a significant uh, force multiplier in dealing with terrorism, which increasingly is going to be homegrown rather than exported in uh, uh, from abroad. And so fusion centers, of which there are now 62 of them in the United States, fusion centers are those centers where, in our case, we have our JRIC center, in which the sheriff, myself, FBI, CIA are all in one room together, the representatives from the smaller police agencies, and we contribute resources. We contribute, most importantly, all of us dump all of our crime information into that fusion center so it can be shared and can be analyzed among each other. So that's a low-cost uh, uh, feature to basically, basically ask a police department to take your crime information and share it among all of us. So we're getting better at that, and it's, it's a very cost-effective way to operate. I have a question here in front of you. If you were advising President Obama on the most effective use of money to fight terrorism, would it be in Afghanistan or L.A.? <laughs> so, so that actually is uh, uh, a very good question. That Homeland Security is really hometown security, that uh, several of the re most recent incidents that have been widely reported in the paper, the Denver incident, which a character uh, basically uh, drove a car into a building with the intent of blowing it up, thinking he had actual explosives in the car, uh, 
And then when he left with his co-conspirator, who happened to be an FBI agent, unknown to him, and the FBI agent, they pull away a couple of blocks away and uh, indicated to the uh, terrorist who was homegrown, uh, you want earplugs? It's going to be kind of loud. And he said, no, I want to hear it. The only thing he heard was the handcuffs going on his wrist. <laughs> homegrown. The character out of New York that they were concerned, multiple bombings similar to the London, homegrown. Timothy McVeigh, homegrown. So the challenge is you have to fight terrorism in Afghanistan, in Pakistan in particular, and you have to fight it here also. And that's where local police are so important. And that's why the efforts of Mike Downey, Johnny McNamara, the LA uh, Police Counterterrorism Bureau are so important because we have very smart people. I have 300 officers in the Los Angeles Police Department. That's the equivalent of the thousand that the much larger LA, uh, NYPD has working exclusively on terrorism issues. You don't see most of them. A lot of them are doing covert investigations. A lot of them are sitting in front of computer screens working the information. But we have developed, in the LAPD, we have developed basically the JVIC concept, was, was, which was one of the first fusion centers in the United States with the Sheriff's Department, and it is the model. We have developed the Archangel system, which is the national matrix adopted by Homeland Security, with, interestingly enough, funding from uh, the Department of Defense, the first $3 million. How do you identify a critical site? How do you go in and analyze uh, its uh, weaknesses so you can strengthen them? And how do you protect it? We have developed a national matrix here. We have also developed the SARS initiative, Suspicious Activity Reporting System, in which we have the national model for training our police officers on how to report terrorist-related suspicious activity. We have recently just launched what will be the national model, iWatch, which is the 2009 version of Neighborhood Watch to deal with traditional crime. This is to educate the American public on how to stay aware, stay aware but not be fearful on how do you report suspicious activity and what is it that you should be aware of that might constitute suspicious activity. So that question is very appropriate. You have to fight it there, unfortunately, because the fighting conditions there are atrocious, but you have to fight it here also. And that's the balance. And uh, fortunately, uh, it's been a long fight over these last seven years to convince the federal government that you have to support local policing being a true partner in this effort. We have in the room Jack Weiss, the former city council member, chair of public safety for Los Angeles. Jack was 150% supporter of getting city government in L.A., and it was an uphill fight convincing his colleagues, some of whom are still not convinced, that terrorism has to be a priority and expenditure of funds. Because one terrorist act in this city would be as devastating as a thousand gang murders. It would upset the economy in this city in a second. And so we have to work our best to protect and defend against it. So that's why we commit the resources that we do to it. Jack early on was a voice in the wilderness that oftentimes, and, uh, but fortunately he kept at it. Mayor Villagosa embraced it and Certainly, I'm not shy about expressing my opinions, and uh, today we have, uh, along with New York, the most robust counterterrorism organization in the United States. We have time for one last question from the audience. Well, you guys are good. Right at 7.30. Great. <laughs> Chief Bratton, this is uh, David Johnson. I want to thank you for your service, and uh, my question is, how will predictive policing be different from profiling? That is a great question because that's what comes up all the time. That uh, it'd be very different in that uh, 
Profiling is controlled by law. It is illegal to profile that although uh, elements of profiling are essential to policing. Predictive policing uh, really won't touch on profiling issues. It is a uh, very different concept in that it is gathering large amounts of information that might not have anything at all to do with characteristics, which is what profiling is all about. It uh, is uh, an area that I am not concerned that will uh, cause us as many concerns as dealing with terrorism-related types of incidents. Predictive policing, while it is uh, going to certainly benefit terrorism-related activities, what we're developing, attempting to develop, is taking what is the, the heart and soul of dealing with terrorism, the gathering of seemingly disparate information, huge amounts of information, and then connecting these seemingly unrelated dots to create intelligence. Well, predictive policing is applying that to the traditional crime model, that uh, the much more visible, the much more prolific, the much more impactful in the day-to-day -day lives of all of us of traditional crime. So I don't see uh, any concern about profiling, although it, it, that issue has been raised and indeed in Harvard over the next several days as we present the paper. The idea from that executive session is to elicit comments about, okay, sounds good, but what about this? What about that? And so when the paper is finally published in a few months, we'll have had the opportunity to basically test it out, if you will. But thank you for that question because it's, it's one of those ones that's going to have to be addressed, but because predictive policing is still not really understood because it's still so new. Similar to the term, excuse me, profiling until 1994, 95, the term profiling, whoever heard of it? And then it became attached to the issue of uh, driving while black, if you will. And then post 9-11, it became attached to the issue of uh, uh, the issue of terrorism and uh, basically terrorism being largely uh, directed by Al-Qaeda and directed by uh, uh, Muslim uh, fanatics that uh, the concern about profiling a religion or profiling people from a certain part of the world. And so with uh, predictive policing, it's, it'll be going in different directions. Uh, let me just take the opportunity to ask one more question. If you could imagine a world in which the Dodgers did make it to the World Series, <laughs> could we convince you to stay a, a couple more years? You, you forget I'm born in Boston and when you're born... <laughs> When, when, when you're born in Boston, before you're released to your parents out of the nursery, they inoculate you with uh -huh. Red Sox fever. All right. And so it's, uh, you, 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 you never basically can escape it. So I'm sorry that I'll be uh, moving back to New York on Sunday, and uh, I could have less interest in the World Series than any of you. And, uh, and I'll, be, I'll be in the city where it's being held. Well, before we close... Uh, before we close, I just wanted to remind you that outside, you've heard references to this, but outside we have a lot of material on a lot of the issues that Chief Bratton and, and Greg talked about this evening, and you're welcome to scoop up that material. If you want to go deeper or go broader into other areas, check out our website, uh, www.ran.org. We put all of our publications, unclassified publications, on the website in full, and you can get those. Uh, and so the last thing for me to do is invite you once again to thank John Vandekamp and Greg Ridgway and especially Chief Bratton for the discussion this evening. Thank you very much. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. 
To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.